Well, welcome to the Dentons Toronto Business Insights Podcast. I'm Blair McCready, the managing partner of Dentons Toronto. And on this podcast, we discuss topics and trends to help general counsel and executives grow, protect, operate, and finance their businesses in Toronto and beyond. Now, Canadian privacy litigation has been on the rise over the last decade, driven by new technologies, the introduction of common law privacy torts, and changing privacy laws. And these claims have really fallen into one of three categories traditionally. They've been claims that challenge a corporation's business practices around the collection and use of data, claims that arise from data breaches and lost storage devices, and claims relating to intentional targeted misconduct, like hacking or employee snooping. So what does all this mean for businesses operating in Canada? I'm uh, pleased to be joined by two experts in the field. Uh, my friend, Sean Bagwandan, who is the General Counsel of Nissan Canada, as well as my Denton's partner and the national lead of our privacy and cybersecurity group, Kirsten Thompson, to discuss these key considerations in the privacy landscape. Welcome to you both. Thank Hello. you very much, Blair. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we jump in? So, Sean, let me kick it off with you. So, litigation risk and damages in breach cases are generally driven by deviation from the standard of care. So, from what you are seeing, how do the courts determine the appropriate standard of care? Thanks, Blair. Um, of course, the the courts are looking at uh, a number of factors um, that help determine what the standard is for any particular organization. So they're looking at what others are doing in the, in others in the sector are doing. Um, they'll look at safeguards, technological measures and non-tech measures, processes and procedures. They'll look to international standards like NIST, ISO, SOC. Um, they'll look at company privacy policies. They'll look at expert evidence as to what should be appropriate or reasonable in the circumstances. But really we see the courts really looking at um, privacy statutes to determine what the standard of care really is. Um, they have made mention of this in, in case law as well. And then finally, they look to privacy commissioner guidance and we see that um, in, in actual data incidents as well. Okay, so I also understand that organizations are generally expected to have proactive monitoring measures in order to keep an eye on and, and audit for suspicious uses of resources, including the exfiltration of personal information. And these measures are really part of the safeguards intended to deter, detect, and react to inappropriate access or use of personal information by external or internal actors. So just taking, taking that into account, Sean, can you tell us a little more about how a business should implement this monitoring in order to address this problem? Oh, definitely. Uh, businesses can implement monitoring activities and controls differently uh, depending on their own operational needs. 
this uh, th those type of activities really need to be appropriate based on the information being handled though and that's all informed by best practices to better detect anomalous activities an organization needs to first establish what normal access patterns for various roles or functions of employees within that organizations are and really what is key is that the inability of an organization to detect and then conclusively identify the cause of a data incident logically affects its ability to learn from those breach incidents and prevent similar breach incidents from reoccurring in the future. So this type of weakness can negatively impact the organization's ability to protect personal information from unauthorized access, disclosure, copying, and use, not to mention affecting one's ability to respond to regulators, as I'm sure we'll discuss. You, you, you raise a, a great point, Sean, on, on regulators, because privacy regulators are becoming increasingly active. And so in addition to common law claims, you know, we're certainly seeing that businesses can also face regulatory investigations, either in response to a complaint about their privacy practices or in the context of a breach. So Kirsten, let me bring you in here. Um, let me ask you about sort of the regulators. What powers do they have? And how do these regulatory investigations work alongside companion litigation? Thanks, Blair. And that's an excellent question. Um, too often clients focus on litigation risk and fail to look at regulatory risk or are focused on regulatory risk and don't consider the litigation risk, uh, particularly in the privacy context. The two go hand in hand. So the first thing to understand in privacy regulation is that there are multiple privacy commissioners in Canada at the provincial level and then one at the federal level. I'm going to talk mainly about the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada or the OPC, which is the federal privacy regulator. Generally speaking, the powers are broadly similar. Um, the important thing to know that right now, uh, the Privacy Commissioner of the OPC doesn't really have a lot of powers in the sense they can't uh, fine companies, they can't levy penalties, and they can't make orders directly. They, to do so, they have to go to court, uh, go through the regular court process. Having said that, um, there has been an increasing push to give more powers to the regulator, and I see that a new privacy bill was introduced into the House of Commons, and I fully expect that once that text is posted, it's going to contain significant enforcement powers. Notwithstanding the fact that the OPC has limited enforcement powers, it has very broad investigatory powers, and it is increasingly making use of that. And it's a bit problematic for businesses because PIPA is really 20 years old. And privacy commissioners 20 years ago were conceived of more as an ombudsman, problem solvers really, not, a, not uh, enforcement or, or true regulators. And because of that, the checks and balances that you would normally expect in a true piece of sort of quasi-judicial regulatory uh, statute, it, they just aren't there. So the privacy commissioner has broad discretion to use its powers. And I'm just gonna go through some of those powers that we're starting to see the privacy commissioners use more frequently. Um, the first is that when the privacy commissioner conducts an investigation, it has the power to summon and enforce the appearance of uh, folks, uh, typically within the organization. It can compel them to give oral or written evidence uh, and produce records. Um, so that, and we'll talk about this later, knowing that that power is there, uh, that means that you should be paying close attention to privilege and document management and due diligence practices. 
Privacy Commissioner can also receive and accept any evidence and other information. This is a broad power. Uh, it typically, how we see it play out is typically the privacy commissioner looks on the internet or reads a newspaper and sees information, newspaper stories, those kinds of things, and incorporates that into their investigation. It does not have to be admissible in a court of law. It's a much lower standard. It can, uh, at a reasonable time, enter any premises, uh, not houses, personal homes, but certainly businesses, and it's used that power in the past. It also has the ability to converse in private with any person in any premises entered. So it is not unusual for the privacy commissioner to invite itself onto your premises and then ask to speak with employees. It is The privacy commissioner is free to make any inquiries it sees fit. There's no reasonableness standard there or relevance standard. It can ask whatever it wants to. And finally, it can examine or obtain copies or extracts from records found in any premises. Uh, and again, there's no, um, there's a relevant standard there, but it's fairly low. Well, Kirsten, let me pick up on a point that you made about privilege and, and document retention, because I would imagine that in the context of a, of a data breach, and when you're responding to a regulatory investigation, probably a key issue for decision makers is, is how to maintain privilege over any internal communications or, in fact, any internal investigations that the organization may have undertaken. So I guess, how should an organization prepare for a breach, taking into account the need to protect privilege? Are there steps that people should be taking beforehand? And when once a breach has occurred, what steps should an organization take afterwards to proactively protect itself through privilege? That's an excellent question, Blair. And many clients misunderstand uh, what goes into protecting privilege or how to appropriately claim privilege, particularly in this context. So protecting privilege in a breach, the best time to do that is before the breach happens. Um, typically, we recommend two things. First of all, that you have a pre-breach privilege playbook. And we work with clients on developing these things. This means you're thinking about privilege and how you're going to claim it or waive it, as the case may be, uh, before. So you, everyone has already had this discussion before any incident happens. In the pre-breach play, privilege playbook, you're looking at things like uh, governance. So the role of general counsel versus the role of the privacy officer. Typically, a privacy officer is a business role. Uh, and will not, you won't be able to claim privilege over those uh, communications. Companies that have a split or dual role between the GC and the privacy officer, so one person is fulfilling both roles, should take a close look at how they manage the governance and you know, related correspondence and decision making. The other pre-breach uh, stuff that usually uh, uh, causes uh, companies some heartburn is all the pre-breach readiness and hardening. So this typically involves a cybersecurity firm coming in, doing penetration testing, um, uh, you know, perimeter hardening, those kinds of things. All of that is likely to be discoverable. Not a lot of that can be protected by privileges, except in some circumstances. So that is a conversation that should also happen before any breach. Once the breach happens, you're really looking at post-breach response and remediation. And that point, you have to be very careful about not inadvertently waiving privilege. And the other point is asserting privilege against the regulator. Um, there's, companies like to lead in responses to the regulator and to others by saying, we had a cybersecurity firm in, they gave us a report and it was all fine. 
And when you say something like that, it opens the door for plaintiff's counsel or the regulator to say, oh, a report, please, we'd like to see that. And then you get into a fight about trying to claim privilege and, and explain that you didn't, in fact, waive privilege. There is case law, that's the Casino Rama case, where the casino, uh, the defendant here, referred to a report in its certification materials and was subsequently uh, required to disclose portions of that report. Um, also, there's a, a case, this is in the health law context, and the privacy commissioners, the provincial privacy commissioners in that context do have order making power. Um, the Ontario Provincial Privacy Commissioner ordered a health lab to produce uh, uh, cybersecurity reports it did claim privilege over because it failed to itemize in sufficient detail what it was claiming privilege over. So it failed to justify why it was claiming privilege. And in that case, the Ontario Privacy Commissioner, unable to make its own determination of whether or not the materials were privileged, ordered them to be disclosed. So be very, very careful about what you're going to claim privilege over and how you're going to protect it and the inadvertent waiver of privilege. So here's a, here's a question for, for both of you, because we're starting to see increasing judicial caution and scrutiny of privacy claims in the Canadian courts. Um, could, could you give us a little insight into some of these trends and what they mean for decision makers? Sean, maybe we can start with you on this one. Sure, um, definitely, Blair. What we're seeing really are current trends of judicial caution, I think is the best way to describe it. Um, and we're seeing that from a lot of recent uh, certification cases. Um, a good example of that is uh, the Simpson v. Facebook case. Um, and Justice Bellababa, where he really did focus on uh, the test for certification and the focus on some on the need. And he focused on the need for some basis in fact. And in that case, he determined that there was no real evidence in the record that any Canadian user's personal data was actually disclosed. That is an interesting um, uh, an interesting example of the judges being a little bit more cautious in their determination of certification. Um, we have other cases like the Chow versus Facebook case where the judge determined that, that the courts have to exercise a robust gatekeeping function to weed out claims of dubious merit. And this has to happen early at the certification stage these are all precedent leading cases and have been relied on by other judges and will be uh, relied on by other judges likely in the future. Uh, other cases such as Winder versus Marriott, uh, we see that uh, the tort of intrusion on seclusion uh, was found to be not available where a defendant is a hacked company as opposed to actually being the hacker itself. We have other cases like Holmesy versus Google, where we see that uh, the, the courts determined that there was imprecise and general factual allegations in the claim that were insufficient to satisfy the threshold requirements of establishing arguable cases. The judge determined that they must be accompanied by some evidence in order to establish an arguable case. All of these cases show an increase, as I'm sure 
uh, Kirsten will agree, in the judges being a little bit more cautious in certifying uh, class actions in the space. All right, so Kirsten, sort of based on these trends that we're seeing, what do you think the key takeaways are for decision makers, um, you know, who may be focusing on this as a priority for their business? Well, as always, it's a good idea to have these conversations in advance of an incident. You want to have the information before you need the information. So what decision makers should be doing is having conversations about what the standard is, know what it is, be abreast of developments, know that it is changing, and against that standard, evaluate your safeguards and processes, et cetera. Uh, that is not a one and done effort, that is an iterative effort. So it could be annual, it could be quarterly in some sectors. Uh, I encourage uh, decision makers to be forward thinking about uh, privilege, uh, how you're going to claim it, how you're going to waive it, um, how you're going to manage the governance roles. Be aware of the litigation trends and outcomes. It's changing rapidly and uh, it varies amongst the provinces. And finally, pay close attention to the regulatory environment because the regulatory environment will inform the litigation environment and your litigation risk. Um, and know that it's not uniform across Canada. For instance, uh, Bill 64 has just been passed in Quebec, and so that privacy law is in the process of changing over the next three years. Federally, a bill has just been introduced, and BC will likely be introducing changes shortly. All of these new bills and eventually laws will inform the standard. Well, that was a, that was a great discussion, and, and thank you very much to um, my guests, Sean Bagwandin, the General Counsel of Nissan Canada, and my partner, Kirsten Thompson, for all of those insights. And, uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Denton's Toronto Business Insights podcast series, which you can find on our dentons.com podcast page. There you can access other episodes as well as descriptions of each topic and information on our speakers. Denton's is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see dentons.com for legal notices. Thanks very much.